Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I am Liz Nord. I'm Joan Fusco. I'm Charles Hain. And we're here on December 7th, 2017. On this week's show, one filmmaker's major role in Russia's Olympic doping scandal, the first news from Sundance 2018, how to deal with brands and logos in your film, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Home of No Film School. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on films. So the big news is that after all our talk about it last week, I finally saw Get Out last weekend, and now I finally what? am prepared for award season. That's like how you I didn't know you hadn't seen Get Out. Yeah, that's why I didn't have that much to say on the story last week when you guys were debating the merits of it being in the musical and comedy category. Although now that I've seen it, I'm like I suspected it was ridiculous. Now I'm like, that's insane. Like, in no world is this a musical or comedy. I mean, Allison Williams does that song and dance. Oh, no, it's Peter Pan. Sorry, Peter Pan. <laughs> Different. Got him mixed up. Yeah, and as John pointed out last week, there's like a couple of funny moments. I mean, it's got comic actors in it, but wow, like it's dark and serious and dramatic and like not. It's a documentary. Ugh, that's what Jordan Peele said. The same day I saw it, as though we are psychically linked. Our Nights and Weekends editor, V, posted a hilarious video that is a comedy uh, where the film's director, Jordan Peele, reads through fan theories from Reddit and he confirms or debunks them. Um, so if you haven't seen the film yet, the, this movie leaves a lot of room for crazy fan conspiracies and conjectures because it's kind of a mystery thriller. Um, so you have to watch this video after you see it. And we'll link to it in this week's podcast post. And you two definitely have to watch this video if you haven't watched it yet. I haven't. I actually, I saw it posted and I was like, I want to know these fan theories. And then I was like, I was at a place where I couldn't watch video without, like, I was like, ah, and I never got back to it. But it's worth watching. Well, the fan theories are hilarious in and of themselves. And then, after all, Jordan Peele is a comedian. So his comic timing and sort of responses to them are just genius. But don't watch the video if you haven't seen the movie because there's lots of spoilers. So, speaking of mysteries... I love it when stories in the real world overlap with stories from the film world, and this one is a doozy. You've probably heard by now that Russia's been banned from the Winter 2018 Olympics set to take place in South Korea. But what does this have to do with movies? Well, a lot, actually. Do you remember back at Sundance this year, we talked about how the festival was hacked, and some people suspected that it might have been done by Russian operatives in relation to some of the perceived anti-Russian films in the festival? (laughs) I know this like sounds like the stuff from a John le Carré novel, but that is the world we're living in. Who is John le Carré? What? He's like the world's best-selling like mystery thriller author. Oh. Yeah. Uh, what's the most recent one? Constant Gardner? Has anything been made since then? Yeah, a lot of movies have been made out of his books. I'm not sure which. Constant Gardner was one of his books. Uh, oh, no, the one where, what's his face? Taylor Swift's ex-boyfriend tried to prove he could be James Bond. That one was a John le Carré. Wow, I love that you know that. It's like he's like the kind of novelist where, like, when you go to the airport bookstore, they're going to have at least 10 of his books because they're like so, like, it's obvious that they're going to be popular and people are going to want to read them on a a plane. But he's also the sophisticated one. Like, I haven't actually read the books, I've only seen the movies, but the movies, (laughs) Constant Gardener is really good. Spy Who Came In from the Cold, I think, is him from the 60s. Mm. He is like the, you know, the, the smart, savvy spy genre thriller guy. And that's exactly why I chose him for this example. Not really. But anyway, so one of the films that we 
talked about at Sundance that like had this sort of Russian tie was this movie Icarus. It's Brian Fogel's documentary. It ended up exposing the world's most widespread doping scandal to date in, you guessed it, Russia. The craziest part of the story is that it's not the one Fogel set out to make, like with a lot of documentaries. But like it went so far from his initial proposal. He was initially putting himself into a supersize me like experiment. But instead of McDonald's, he was going to dope up and see if it made him a better athlete. Um, But the only sports scientist that he could find who was sketchy enough to participate was this guy, Grigory Rodchenkov, who ran a place that was called Russia's National Anti-Doping Laboratory, but in true mystery novel fashion, it was actually a front for Russia's state-run program to enhance its Olympic athletes with drugs. So the place called the Anti-Doping Lab was actually the Doping Lab. Dope. Anyway, Rodchenkov became a whistleblower. Fogel, the filmmaker, ended up collecting a bunch of evidence, sending it to the New York Times. Then an investigation was launched, and last year, the World Anti-Doping Agency released a bananas report containing proof of at least 1,000 Russian athletes doping in 30 sports between 2011 and 2015. I'm shocked. Are you really? No. So basically, all of this has now resulted in both an award-winning film and this week's announcement from the International Olympics Committee. So subsequently, the filmmaker ended up helping Grigory Rodchenkov get out of Russia after his two of his colleagues ended up, quote, mysteriously dead. And Rodchenkov is now here in witness protection in the U.S. pending ongoing DOJ and FBI investigations. Like, it's nuts. That's amazing. Yeah. So we've got coverage from Sundance of Brian Fogel talking about the whole thing. And Icarus is now available on Netflix if you want to see the madness for yourself. I always like to see, you know, documentary films having an impact. What I think we can probably all agree that is the last thing this industry needs is another awards show. Unless, of course, someone wants to hand out a trophy for Best Indie Film News Podcast, in which case we will gladly accept. But... Another awards show we have indeed, namely the Los Angeles Online Film Critics Society, or Lawafux Awards, <laughs> whose nominees were announced Monday afternoon. I believe it's pronounced Lawafux. Lawafux. I like yes. that. Yeah. So the Lawafux were announced, uh, the Lawafux nominees were announced Monday afternoon. And here's what's interesting about them, and it's sure to spark an industry wide conversation. So do you guys remember a while back we reported the MTV Movie Awards decided to get rid of gender-based categories for male and female actors and just have a single best acting category? That is yep. awesome. Yeah. So the Laufucks have decided to go the opposite direction, and they've separated the best director category into two separate categories for men and women. So best male director and best female director. Scott Mance, one of the founders of the Online Film Critics Society, said in a statement, quote, There has been so much conversation about the power of female filmmakers, and we wanted to embrace it, end quote. So I don't know about you all, but I mean, my first reaction was like, why don't you embrace it by just nominating more women for Best Director, period? Well, so they've achieved their first goal, which is we are talking about them. (laughs) As a marketing move, it is like as good as the Dogma 95 manifesto in terms of getting, like I had never heard of the Laufux before. Nobody, like, is this an organization other people, was it on either of your radars? John loves the Laufux. No, I've never heard of it. No. Like, as a marketing move, well well done. I agree. Actually, I hadn't thought about that. Smart, smart, guys. 
But I don't know. It's like the whole thing. The more I thought about it, the more sort of agitated I became because like it also to me just seems so backward at a time when we're finally recognizing like a wider gender spectrum where people don't necessarily fit easily into one category or another that like we'd be further separating genders instead of consolidating car- like categories. Or if you feel like, hey, you know, there's so many directors and we can't possibly like fit five into one category. So let's make two categories. Then either... I don't know, make a category of 10 or come up with some other non-gender based like distinction. Like what if we had best drama director versus best comedy director, which, you know, John and I have talked about a bunch. Like those are actually pretty different skills. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. Like obviously the categorization based on gender is something we're trying to move away from because like there's people who don't fit in either binary. And like the whole argument people always make for the electoral college is like it balances rural and urban voices. And I'm like, why is that so important? Like, couldn't we also do some sort of thing that balances, like, other voices? Like, drama and comedy is, like, a perfect example. Or, like, musical, right? Like, best musical director. There's all of that. My instinct is to say this is stupid, but I'm actually going to argue for it for a minute for devil's advocate's sake. All right. I saw this coming. I thought it was going to come from John Fusco. Here's the thing. In an ideal world, we don't need things like affirmative action, right? Like, when there has been no historic bias... We don't need to look at race when we're hiring people because there's never been historic bias. There's never a history of slavery. There was never redlining. So everyone has an equal shot. So we can just hire whoever. In a country with history of slavery, with a, in a country with history of Jim Crow laws, we need affirmative action to try and rebalance for the next probably 100 years to make up for 300 years of shittiness. I kind of feel like in a culture in a culture that currently has entrenched misogyny, rape culture built into the system in a culture that is so insanely male-dominated as America in 2017 and the film industry, for now, offering this specific group a separate set of awards as we transition and hopefully move towards a more fair and equitable world seems like a good way to ensure that we are paying attention to the women directors out there doing good work. And I think that, like, I dream, you know, I hope for a world where affirmative action and things like this are not needed. But I think it's really obvious right now that we do need to do more to be more inclusive to female filmmakers. Actually, totally. I agree with you, of course, on the general point. But I think they're two separate issues. Like, if we're talking strictly about, like, quotas or affirmative action, I think it'd be great if more film sets took, at least if not in a formal way, in an informal way, took on that mindset. Like, hey, we're going to try to, like, find at least interview both a male grip and a female grip and see who, you know, who's better rather than we're only going to talk to dudes. Like, that to me makes sense. Like, giving women more actual opportunities to practice their craft is one thing. But then when it comes to the awards, like, the films should stand on their own. And by making a separate category, it's, like, already, to me, it's already implying, like, well, these films can't really compete with the men, so we'll give them their own category. I don't know, though, because it increases the number of people getting awards, right? Like when the Academy Awards opened up its Best Picture from 5 to 10, people competing for Best Picture, that's great because more people watch because more popular movies are in competition. But, like, there's still only one Best Picture award. So, like, I suspect if they didn't do this, their Best Director award is 8 out of 10 times in the next 10 years going to go to a dude because of systemic biases in the film industry. And one of the ways you perpetuate your career is awards, right? Like, 
obviously box office is the biggest thing. Like Lady Bird being a hit is going to be the big thing that helps Greta Gerwig get her next movie made. But like if you can also scoop up some awards with that, I don't know what's... Uh... Yeah, but I'd want that award to be best director for me, not best female director. But I think to get to a world where that... like. Like, right now, there are just as many women as men who have Best Acting Academy Awards. And I think we've seen systemic benefits to that over the last 50 years where they're able to accrue power and prestige and better quotes and stuff like that. And right now, I think it's still a misogynistic industry where even if we say, all right, half the women have to be nominated, like the nominations have to be half female and half male or something, even if they said that. I bet it would still end up with more dudes winning because the voters have internalized misogyny, probably. Very interesting. I will look forward to kind of seeing, you know, which way the industry, like, sort of heads with all this, whether, like, more awards categories end up being consolidated or split up. It's it's a conversation that's ongoing and very interesting, I think. Uh, So finally, in headlines, in case you missed it, Sundance has announced the majority of its lineup this week, including all of the narrative and doc feature films in competition and in the premiere sections. I'm so excited to comb through the program. But on first glance, I especially want to congratulate two filmmakers who we've had on the interview podcast this year. Julie Cohen, who was just on last month, got in with her doc RBG about rock star Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What? I love her. And Josephine Decker, who has been on the show twice for her films Collective Unconscious and Flames, will be premiering her new narrative feature, Madeline's Madeline. According to the festival for 2018, 110 feature-length films were selected, representing 29 countries and 47 first-time filmmakers, which is pretty cool. Like, almost half the features are first-time filmmakers. So 30 of those are in competition. And these films were selected from... 13,468 submissions. Holy God. Oh, wow. (laughs) 3,901 of those were features and 8,740 short films were submitted. And of the feature films submitted, uh, 1,799, or approximately half, were from the U.S. and 2,102 were international. Exactly 100 feature films at the festival will be world premieres. John, how'd you like to be on that shorts committee with over 8,000 <laughs> submissions? I mean, when I when I saw that press release, I since I'm like targeting, you know, my short to get into Sundance, of course, like everyone else, I just got so disheartened like immediately, and especially because of the next piece of news you're gonna about to say about uh, a new a certain new section that I feel maybe diminishes the uh, the importance of the short within these festivals. Um, so do you want to go ahead and talk about the uh, indie episodic, uh, the new indie episodic slate? Spoiler alert. Um, do you want to talk about it? Sure. I'll talk about it. So, you know, it's worth noting, uh, especially about this year's festival, is that they have unveiled this entirely new section called Indie Episodic, which showcases independent storytellers which create new work in the episodic format. Uh, The festival has shown episodic content in the past, but it's never created a distinct section for it. The section will showcase 17 shows, all but one hails from the U.S. And so while this is like an important thing, definitely, and it's an interesting uh, step for Sundance, and I think that a lot of festivals should probably follow in their footsteps. 
it's worrying to me that it was sent out that the news of this was sort of sent out in the same breath as shorts because when there's 8,750 shorts being sent out and then you now have this indie episodic slate sort of being released in combination with the shorts program it it makes the chances even less for someone with a short to get into Sundance I feel I mean they're too like I totally understand the worry and obviously those numbers just feel kind of crushing to anybody but as we've said so many times before like especially in terms of the shorts the the cream really rises like there's so many bad shorts and the good ones stand out the good ones like John Fusco's the guy will definitely stand out but I think um in terms of this particular concern it's a, it's one conversation about whether or not these festivals should have episodic content but the other part is like they have separate programmers and separate whole sections for for each type of film. So it's not that episodic content is in competition with shorts, even though they came out in the same press release. They're not actually competing with each other. They're not going to have fewer shorts because there's more episodic, at least not yet. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like there's just so much emphasis being placed on this indie episodic, though, that, like again, it diminishes really the whole shorts program i don't know for me that that was kind of what i took away from it is that from that press release it was like an afterthought almost and like i understand trying to promote your new section like that's that's great and i also think that the episodic content is great i think it's a great idea but i would have liked to see uh either more focus on the indie episodic uh slate in a separate (laughs) press release or in a separate breath than the shorts because they're two entirely different things um and i don't think that you know it should draw attention away from the importance of a short film or because they're two entirely different things and i don't know maybe maybe it's just my own anxiety coming through but i don't know if uh they are actually separated is that what they said that it would be two distinctly separate programs or so it's really interesting question like we'll have to really keep our eyes on that on the ground this year and see whether we feel like when we're actually there, the shorts are getting more or less attention. Yeah, I mean, I imagine it'll at least be exhibited in the same way where you like go and you see a bunch of indie episodes, like episodic things in one sitting. So you'll see maybe like 10 episodes or I guess six episodes of a of six different series. And yeah, then... it'll be interesting to see. I mean, to your point, like Tribeca this year launched its Tribeca TV Festival, which it did a whole separate time of year mm-hmm. than the Tribeca Festival. But I don't think that actually got a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. So interesting to see how these different festivals are wrestling with it and what it will mean for actually, especially shorts makers that are trying to make their first big splash. Yeah, again, I think it's like an important thing. And I think, uh, you know, I was talking to someone last night who was who was talking about how they have this. Uh, pitch for a documentary TV series um, that they've been working on and like it would fit perfectly for something like this but that's a completely different thing than a narrative short film you know those are two completely different formats and it's it's hard for me to see those being lumped together in any form well we'll find out for ourselves when the festival takes place January 18th to the 28th and as always please Dear listeners, let us know if you are lucky enough to have a film in the festival so that we can look out for it when we're on the ground in Utah next month. And by the way, while we're congratulating folks, congrats to the filmmakers who were recognized in Time's Person of the Year issue as part of the group of silence breakers who helped create this watershed moment in the discussion uh, and treatment of sexual misconduct in our industry and beyond. 
and to Patty Jenkins, who time-listed as a runner-up for being, quote, the director redefining how the world sees women, end quote, for her record-breaking work on Wonder Woman. And just one more, one more thing about this Sundance um, uh, slate. It's funny because we had I had a few of my friends on uh, the podcast a, a couple months ago who were trying to get their feature version of Hamlet into Sundance, and it didn't end up working out for them, unfortunately. But they actually were going up against a movie called Ophelia, which was a retelling of Hamlet from Ophelia's perspective, starring Daisy Ridley. So like, oh. <laughs> that's a a hard uh you can't have two hamlet movies in one festival and obviously the one starring daisy ridley is probably gonna probably gonna take it has she broken out to being a star in her own right now yeah yeah she's done she said uh earlier this week i think that after the next star wars she's done with star wars she's not gonna be in it and she was also in murder in the orient express um so i think she's already trying to distance herself from ray you know because a lot of those, I mean, barring Harrison Ford, a lot of the people that were in the original Star Wars trilogy, Mark Hamill's made himself for a name in animated, you know, the animated world, but he'll be forever known as Luke Skywalker. Carrie Fisher, uh, R.I.P., always going to be Princess Leia in my book. All right, moving on to gear news. What you got for us this week, Charles Hayne? All right, so top of the gear news this week is wooden camera answering filmmakers' prayers with a PL adapter for the Panasonic EVA-1. So the EVA-1 is probably the hottest new camera to hit the streets this year. And the one worry folks had about it is that it uses the EF mount, which ruled out all of your favorite PL mounts in glass. Now, Wooden Camera's making a PL mount adapter, so filmmakers don't have to worry, and they can go ahead and put all those PL mount lenses onto the EVA-1. However, you do have to take your, your EF mount off, and the PL mount adapter is a dumb mount, so lens data isn't going to pass through. So if you have, like... EF mount Sigma cine zooms, the EVA-1 will record like where your zoom is set, where your focus is set, all of that through the EF mount, which is great for VFX. The PL mount's a dumb mount, so you're not going to get all that data, but any of your PL mount glass will mount up, so that is really exciting. Uh, Next up, Lytro's been making waves for a couple years now with their light field capture tech, and they just released a major revision to their Emerge capture platform. Uh, many are arguing that Lightfield is the future of cinema, since instead of using a single camera, they use an array of cameras and lenses to capture the entire light field of a scene, which allows like a whole lot of creativity, reframing, new camera placement, all sorts of stuff, and really interesting VR applications in the post-process. Lytro is totally the leader in this market, and Emerge, which is currently still the size of a refrigerator, is their sort of most popular out-in-the-field platform, so the revision to Emerge 2.0 uh, lets us know they're still working on it, and it's it's still coming for us. So hopefully we're going to see some more interesting applications from filmmakers soon. What's the actual change or the biggest change that was made with Emerge 2.0? The big upgrade with the Emerge 2.0 is they've increased the field of view in front of the lens lenses from 90 degrees with the Emerge 1.0 to 120 degrees with the 2.0. So this means if you want to do like a full 360-degree capture, like let's say you're doing a VR application, instead of needing five like you did originally because the original one needed a little overlap, they're now saying you only need three emerges with their 120-degree fields of view each to get your full 360 immersive capture. And so as VR applications, which always seem to be about six months to a year out, it always feels like we're about six months from VR being big, um... In 2018, you'll start to see Emerge 2.0 doing some interesting stuff in VR. 
Next up is a little one. We also covered the story of the merger between Lens Protego and Lens Reynolds. It's more of a partnership than a full-on merger, and interestingly, they're going to keep both public brands alive. But the inventory is going to merge, which is going to create the largest online inventory of rental gear for the photo and video industry. Last up uh, is the end of the video essay series, Every Frame a Painting. So it's not purely tech news, but it was really interesting to me from a tech angle because their parting article discussed some interesting ways that really technology kind of dictated their voice and their personality. So they designed their video essays for YouTube, which meant they had to work around the content ID system that YouTube uses to flag copywritten material and take it down. So they had to do a whole lot of A-B testing to see how much of this clip can they keep up, how much of that clip could they keep up. And that ended up informing the choices they made as filmmakers and helped create the sort of signature every frame a painting voice. Um, I always think it's interesting to pay attention to the way that like the technology we use affects the way we communicate. And I thought that was a really interesting part of the uh, pretty sad announcement that we're not going to have any more videos from every frame of painting. That is so interesting. And uh, I'd like to know the formula they found out for the videos we put up. Oh, yeah. Because we've had to take stuff down from YouTube that had, you know, a little bit of a clip of this or that in it. And this week on Ask No Film School, Ed Cleary wants to know, I've got a short film and there are a lot of books in it, stacks and stacks in a person's house. But I'm curious if anyone knows, because I can't seem to find an answer, about seeing books on film. Do I need to have permission to show them? Uh, Ed, that is a great question. And it's one that applies not just to books, but advertisements, logos, anything that's like trademarked or copywritten you need to pay attention to. This particular question is also a confusing one where we get into the di distinction between what is like 100% legal and then what the common industry practice is. So it's probably illegal to have a recognizable trademarked image in your project, like a book cover or a very prominent book title that is trademarked or copywritten unless you argue that it's transformative use. So, like, technically you could have a really famous book in the title, but if you've, like, repainted the cover or something, famously an artist put a mustache on the Mona Lisa, transforming the Mona Lisa, that you can get away with. But if it's just the normal one, and it's been trademarked or copywritten, then you are technically opening yourself up to action from that copyright holder. To avoid stuff like this, you can actually get all sorts of products with fake names, Obviously, Tarantino is famous for always using his red apple cigarettes, which are like part of world building, but it's also part of avoiding having to feature significant cigarette brands in his movies. You can even rent fake books with fake titles from prop houses to fill library shelves and such. However, in practice, this isn't really an issue unless you highlight a product, and specifically it's a bigger issue if you highlight that product in a negative way. Unless the other issue you might sometimes run into is conflicting sponsors. So, hiding a logo on a set is referred to as Greeking a logo, uh, which I think comes from the expression, it's all Greek to me, and I don't think is racist against Greeks. But <laughs> if someone thinks it's racist against Greeks, let us know, but I think it's not. Regardless, when you Greek a logo, you are hiding it or obscuring it so the audience can identify it. You'll almost always notice this with Apple laptops. Every time one of them appears in a movie, there's like a sticker over it, usually indicating something about the character, and they do this to hide the trademarked logo. 
This is because usually when someone's using like a MacBook Air in a shot, it's like them and the laptop. And if they're in bed, there won't be any other logos or anything. It's the only logo and they want to cover it because they don't want it to be featured. But like, let's say you shoot in a bar and it's got like 50 ads on the wall for every type of beer. And there's like a lamp over the pool table that advertises another type of beer and a poster and like a calendar from another beer brand. Since no logo is specified, you really traditionally, we don't really Greek that on sets. We assume that there's, since there's so many, none of which is being specifically targeted, you're fine. Or like none has like a dominating like prominence. Exactly. Prominence is key. Also, it would look crazy if you Greeked an entire bar. If like every single poster had like a little piece of tape over the, it would be nuts. So since there's so many, you're usually okay. This is why you'll likely get away with your books. If there are so many books and none are featured, you'll probably be fine. A lawyer is probably going to tell you that you're opening yourself up to action from every one of those bookmakers, but it's unlikely and most filmmakers don't tend to worry about it. However, there have been cases where brands have gone after filmmakers. For instance, in the Denzel Washington alcoholism drama Flight, uh, he drank Budweiser before drinking and flying a plane. Budweiser was understandably kind of pissed, especially since he crashed the plane, and the studio digitally changed the labels for the home release. However... In that case, the Budweiser bottles had been featured and used negatively. I don't think the studio went after all the other alcohol in the movie, and there's a whole bunch of other alcohol in the movie because he's an alcoholic, and I think there's bar scenes. I think it was just the Budweiser bottles he drank before flying and preventing a plane crash, but the plane still crashed. So if one of your characters takes up one of those books from the stack and like beats someone to death with it <laughs> or reads a book and decides to shoot someone, you probably want that to be a fake book. You definitely don't want that to be like a recognizable trademarked book because they will likely come after you. And if you already shot it, you probably want to digitally replace the book cover with a fake title and cover image if possible. However, if there's nothing to make the book look bad and it's literally room full of books, you're fine. The other thing to remember in all this is television, though. Television shows Greek logos like crazy because in addition to all the other concerns, they also worry about conflicting with advertisers. So, like, for instance, every single TV show, like a real estate show where they're driving up to a house to look at houses, all of the car logos are always Greeked. Because, like, if they're driving around looking at houses all day in Volkswagens and there's the big Volkswagen logo there, you run into a conflict if Ford wants to run ads against that show. But, by the way, if you do see the car logo, it likes, likely means it's sponsored content. Like Almost always. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, totally. And you will absolutely see that in some shows where you're like, ah, Ford. Product F placement. Yeah, Ford and that yeah. real estate agent have a deal. Totally. So if you're hoping to sell your short to TV, which isn't common, but it could happen, and you're worried that Penguin Random House might be annoyed that you have so many Scribner books, which is never going to happen. Penguin <laughs> doesn't really run TV ads. But if you were, you could try and Greek the logos of the competing brands, but it's probably not going to be a big deal. Uh, good luck with the rest of your project. And I have to say that we are not lawyers, and this isn't official legal advice, but it's based on our industry experience and... Uh, if you're really worried, definitely go see an entertainment attorney uh, before you get the movie out there. But thanks for the question, Ed, and thank you for the answer, Charles Hain. And thank you, Liz Nord, for covering my ass. Yes, <laughs> we are not lawyers. We do not give official legal advice. That's what I'm here for. And now for some exciting independent movie releases you can catch this week. Coming to VOD is Fits and Starts. Laura Teruso, the director, has held nearly every position on an indie film set, producer, AD, and DP, 
And having first proved her writing chops as screenwriter on the South by Southwest crowd-pleaser Hello, My Name is Doris, she has now directed her first feature, Fits and Starts, a comedic look at two writers played by Wyatt Senak and Greta Lee, whose disparate successes wreak havoc on their marriage. Fun fact! Teruso also worked as a cinematographer on High Maintenance, and that's how she met Greta Lee. We have a great interview with her on the site about how she brought all of the relationships and skills that she gathered from years in the industry together to get this debut feature made. And It Comes at Night is hitting Amazon Prime Instant on December 9th. Trey Edward Schultz made his first film, Cretia, in just nine days with multiple members of his family as cast, and it was one of the biggest indie hits of 2015. His new movie, It Comes at Night, is one of the first to be financed by A24, and we imagine they gave him a whole new world of possibilities with a nice budget to play around with. The plot centers around a man who locks himself secure within a desolate home as an unnatural threat terrorizes the world. He has established a tenuous domestic order with his wife and son, but it is soon put to the test when a desperate young family arrives seeking refuge. So it's a horror on two parts. It's like a familial horror, and it's a zombie horror. The movie stars Joel Edgerton, Christopher Abbott, and Riley Keough. And hitting HBO on December 9th is Logan. There's so many superhero movies that come out these days that it's hard to get really genuinely excited about any upcoming releases into the genre. But there is one entry in particular from this year that proved to separate itself from the pack. That movie is, of course, Logan. At first, in an oversaturated scene of superhero movies, it was definitely hard to imagine another X-Men movie could be any different. Hugh Jackman played Wolverine in eight different X-Men movies since he first took the role in 2000. For a series that has rebooted so many different times, complete with new actors for all the original characters involved, it really does say something that Jackman has always been the only actor to ever play the Wolverine. And damn if he doesn't look good doing it. This is Jackman's final time playing the character that pretty much made his career. And the critics' consensus was that Jackman makes the most of his final outing as Wolverine with a gritty, nuanced performance in a violent but surprisingly thoughtful superhero action film that defies genre conventions. Patrick Stewart also came out saying that this will be the last time he plays Professor Xavier in the franchise, but the winning move was Logan ditching the PG-13 vibes of the earlier installments and going for R. I think this was most important because it means they're not sacrificing any quality or censoring any deeper thematic material to try and appeal to a wider audience of teenagers. The plot follows a weary Logan who cares for an ailing Professor X in a hideout on the Mexican border, but Logan's attempts to hide from the world and his legacy are upended when a young mutant arrives, being pursued by dark forces. It's directed by James Mangold, who previously directed The Wolverine. This film was on our 2017 most anticipated list, and uh, it definitely paid off. Um, it's dark, man. It's Don't go in expecting your typical superhero movie, but we also have lots of Logan-oriented posts on the site sort of talking about its place in the larger superhero canon that John was just referring to. So we'll also link to those in this week's podcast post. Yeah, I think one of those video essays that we wrote up was like how it signaled the end of superhero movies, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, so check that one out. I don't know the exact title, but we'll put it in the article. And coming to theaters on December 8th, you can finally see Guillermo del Toro's latest film, The Shape of Water. It's drawn a lot of comparisons to the legendary Pan's Labyrinth, as our modern master of creature creation has developed another beautiful protagonist in The Amphibian Man. 
Some are saying that this is Del Toro's greatest work yet. Of course, it's an otherworldly fairy tale set against the backdrop of the Cold War era America, circa 1962. In a hidden high security government laboratory where she works, lonely Elisa, who is also deaf, is trapped in a life of isolation. Elisa's life is changed forever, however, when she and coworker Zelda discover a secret classified experiment. The film stars Sally Hawkins, Octavia Spencer, and Del Toro staple Doug Jones as the amphibian man. Jones played the fawn and the creature with eyes for hands in Pan's Labyrinth, the pale man, as well as Abe Sapien in Hellboy. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's that. He's like he's that his guy. main actor. Yeah. Fun fact. Uh, I cannot wait to see this one. I tried to go to a screening this past week where, where Del Toro was actually appearing, and it was sold out with a huge waiting line. So, But I'll see it anyway with my new movie pass that just arrived in the mail. Very nice. Another movie that's coming out this Friday is I, Tonya. Margot Robbie takes a big step away from Harley Quinn in this Tonya Harding biopic directed by Craig Gillespie. Her performance is getting rave reviews, and she's already been nominated for a Gotham and Independent Spirit Award. Allison Janney has also drawn some awards buzz for her part in the picture, which follows competitive ice skater Tanya Harding's rise amongst the ranks at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships. Of course, her future in the activity is thrown into doubt when her ex-husband intervenes. And finally, rolling out in theaters starting earlier in the month and now wider release starting Friday, December 8th, um, is The Light of the Moon. This is a film about a successful New York City architect who, after her world is irrevocably changed, struggles to regain intimacy and control in her life. It's directed by Jessica M. Thompson, and it won the Audience Award at South by Southwest earlier this year. We had the film's badass DP, Autumn Aiken, on a great podcast roundtable with South by Southwest cinematographers talking about some of their toughest shoots, and it's called The Shoots That Almost Killed Us. Autumn has one story about shooting from one of those construction lifts that goes up the side of a skyscraper, and it's pretty nuts. I also want to mention that another film shot by a DP on that same podcast episode, Jennifer Crute's The Untold Tales of Armistead Mopan, filmed by the wonderful Shane King, is also available as of today on iTunes and other VOD platforms. So we'll link to that DP roundtable in the podcast post with all these others. And now moving on to upcoming deadlines and events. Here are a few screenplay contest deadlines for you. The Script Pipeline Great Movie Idea Contest has a deadline on December 10th. If you can come up with a better name for them, they'll give you $2,000. <laughs> if you have a catchy logline, synopsis, or video pitch, you could win $1,000 and pitch development from Script Pipeline. For the winner, Script Pipeline provides additional development assistance to refine the pitch or help the writer draft a polished screenplay. At that point, they circulate the material to top studio producers and other major companies looking for new concepts. All entrants, including the winner and runner-up, retain the rights to their submission. So that's important. Mm -hmm. And the next contest is the ScreenCraft Short Story Contest, which has a deadline on December 16th. If you've got a short story with cinematic potential, you could win $1,000 and an introduction to a plethora of literary agents. So this is for stories, not scripts. And the grand prize winner will receive $1,000 and personal introductions to these agents, managers, producers, and publishers. The top five finalists will be read by a network of over 40 literary and entertainment industry professionals. And now moving on to festival deadlines. The Mammoth Lakes Film Festival has a deadline on December 15th. It's the early bird deadline. 
It takes place in Mammoth Lakes, California from May 23rd to the 28th, 2018, and was named one of Movie Maker Magazine's top 50 film festivals for the past two years. It has cash prizes ranging from $500 to $1,000, and they also provide travel stipends, housing, and festival passes for their filmmakers, along with camera packages and more to the winners. Over $60,000 in cash and prizes were awarded in 2017. We also have a couple festival deadlines for you doc folks out there. The American Documentary Film Festival and Film Fund, or AMDOCS, has a deadline of December 16th. This is the late deadline, your final chance. This is one of the largest doc-only festivals in the U.S., and it focuses on international films in both the short and feature categories, as well as showcasing animation, which is kind of interesting for a doc festival. In conjunction with the festival is the American Documentary Film Fund, where U.S. filmmakers compete for startup or finishing funds and can have the chance to win up to 50 grand, so it's definitely worth a look. And I admit that last week we missed the regular deadline for one of the world's biggest documentary film festivals, Hot Docs, but fortunately the late deadline isn't until January 8th, so you have another few weeks to apply. Um, This festival will take place April 26th to May 6th in Toronto. It accepts Canadian and and international docs of all lengths and subject matter, but your features must not be available online in any form. However, shorts can have been online before. For features, Hot Docs strives to bring at least one filmmaker to Toronto for each invited film. They provide hotel accommodation and a stipend for travel expenses. And for all the films, Hot Docs provides festival accreditation for every credited director and one producer. So it's a pretty good deal. And this is a major, major documentary festival in North America with a wonderful Canadian audience. And as we near the end of this cold December episode, we'll warm up with some weekly words of wisdom. What are yours this week, John? So I wrote a farewell piece to Tony Zoe and Taylor Ramos from Every Pain of Painting earlier this week, which Charles mentioned earlier in the show. And it was certainly a bittersweet article, to say the least, as we hate to see them go. They are widely considered as the greatest video essayists of all time and have sprouted a real movement among the filmmaking community to increase film literacy for everyone. But in their farewell statement, they gave one piece of advice I found to be particularly apt, and that is this. Test your ideas out on people you trust. Quote, We like to turn each essay's premise into a very simple statement or question, Zoe explains. Then we take that simple question and we test it out on real people. Now, I think that filmmakers can take this idea and apply it to their own projects. Give your friends a pitch about your newest project. Just, you know, boil it down to a thesis, as Zoe does. For him, quote, the goal was to see if people react to an idea without us trying to sell it. Because if the basic idea is already interesting to people, it'll only get better once we sharpen and hone it into a proper argument. But if nobody bites at the early stage, that usually means the idea needs more time to develop, or maybe we're asking the wrong question. So yeah, the point is that your friends aren't going to want to listen to a pitch, but they also aren't going to judge you on your idea. If you have even a germ of an idea, just have a conversation about it and learn how those that you most trust actually feel about it. That's what I'd say. Very wise, John. My uh, weekly words of wisdom come from the fact that we finally got our interview up with DP Rachel Morrison of Mudbound, which hit theaters a couple weeks ago and has been widely praised for its cinematography. Um It's a period piece, and she talked about how they sort of got inspiration. One of the places where she pulled inspiration from was a Time Life magazine essay from the 50s by Gordon Parks 
um, that was, she called it the perfect example of color for her because it felt period, but it didn't feel washed out. She said the thing she likes about his work is that it retained these details in the blacks, whereas like these days, there's this whole trend toward milking out the blacks, especially with period films. Like, you you know, we're used to seeing these period films where it's all like washed out as though we're watching it in a dream. And she went the opposite direction. Um she said, quote, I think you gain so much with contrast. So to milk out the blacks is really handicapping yourself in terms of storytelling. And then when we asked her what did she actually do to heighten the contrast, she said it's a combination of different things, obviously lighting being a huge part of it. I thought this was interesting. She said, quote, when I shoot digital, I still try to think about it like choosing film stock. Sometimes you choose multiple film stocks, one for day, one for night, or one for present day and one for flashbacks. I like to approach digital the same way. So in our case, instead of raising the toe of the curve in the LUT, which is what a lot of people do with period films, we retain the contrast in the blacks, and then I would just light within that. So I always like hearing about people, you know, flipping the convention, you know, in any kind of project. And this was a cool example. Have you seen it yet? Yeah, me neither. I'm really looking forward to it. This is Dee Reese's Mudbound, and we'll link to the article with DP Rachel Morrison. In our podcast post, I want to give a shout out to another thing you can watch this week, and it is truly nuts. Filmmaker Marshall Allman re-edited Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, according to how he thinks Kubrick would have edited himself had he not died four months before the film's release. So Allman's version, Eyes Wide Cut, you know I love my puns, it's now available online, and we have an interview with him about how and why, really, he did it that we will link to in this week's podcast post. Uh, I also want to send out some love to our listeners and friends in the L.A. area who are being affected by these massive wildfires right now. Stay safe. We love you guys. Finally, next Monday, we'll have my final in the trio of episodes from Doc NYC on our interview podcast. Um, this one's really exciting. It's about how to shoot in a war zone, and it features two filmmakers who did just that, albeit in very different circumstances. So on one side of the spectrum, we have Nathan Fitch of Island Soldier, who embedded with the U.S. military in Afghanistan for his doc. And then in a whole different set of circumstances, Daniel McCabe of This Is Congo shot amidst the Congolese civil war for six years. So we'll talk about like what gear makes sense in those situations, but also how to shoot while you're literally being shot at, among many other topics. It's a good one. And until then, you can read about everything we talked about on this show and lots more about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. Please keep abreast of our future episodes by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. Look for No Film School. And as always, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. He's at Jim John Jim. And Charles is at Charles Hain. We are all at No Film School. And we'll see you next week. Ciao.